2 about the outpouring of Holy Spirit on the earth. And um, so I, I just feel like the Lord really encouraged me to, uh, to do this message today, and he's going to have to help me. And again, next week I'm going to be talking, I'm going to go off the map a little bit, and we're going to talk about what can we be expecting to be happening next on the prophetic timetable of what's going to happen before Jesus returns. And so if you have people that you know that are very interested in that, invite them to come. So I want to pray first. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help me. You would remind me of things to say. Show me things that I need to skip. And that you would speak to our hearts, Lord, the things that you want us to catch today. I want to thank you, Lord, for the legacy that this church has of godly, uh, sacrificing believers who pioneered this congregation and, and uh, the things that you have done in and through Calvary over the years. I thank you, God, for faithful people, hungry people, people who have cried out for your Spirit to move and to be poured out and to see um, people come to know you, Jesus. And I just thank you and ask that you'd help me now as I, as I share this message that you put on my heart. In Jesus' name, amen. So, if you're not familiar with the fact that um, the denomination that we're uh, part of is called the Assemblies of God, um, it's what's called a, a Pentecostal denomination. And the Pentecostal can be uh, pronounced in a very religious way, like Pentecostal, or it can just be pronounced Pentecostal. And... Um, Pentecostals have got a lot of different, um, people look at that word a lot of different ways, depending on what their frame of reference is. And um, it, it kind of like stereotypically used to be the poor people on the other side of the tracks um, that didn't have any education and uh, were totally into emotionalism and, and weirdness. And that was what Pentecostals were. And um, I'm very glad to say this morning that that's not biblical, and it's fortunately and thankfully it's not the culture that we embrace today. And um, when, when we're going to talk about this whole, why do they call us Pentecostals in just a moment, but I want to share a little story with you first. Um, um, just last week, I got a phone call from a, from a gentleman named Marlon who's a dear friend of mine. We have known each other since 1976, or 5, 75. And uh, he was in my youth group when I was um, in college and, uh, in Olympia, Washington. I, I, I ministered with this youth group for a summer and a year, well, about, about a year, I was doing an internship with the state legislature in, in, uh, in Olympia, Washington, because I was a political science major in college. And um, Marlon became a dear friend, and, and now he and I have been f maintained a friendship for all these years. And um, he's living in eastern Washington, and he called me up, as we talk on the phone about once a week. He works for BNSF, you know the guys, the rail crew, that, that pick up the engineers and the conductors and take them to their trains? That's what he does, so he works indirectly for BNSF, I guess. And um, he called me up, and he was at work in his van, but he had a break in between in rides, and he said, uh, he said, I went to my church. He started going to this church in the Spokane area recently, and he said, uh, he said, uh, I've been doing some uh, devotionals, 
getting ready for Christmas, and I've been writing some Advent devotionals, because he, he he's a retired pastor now. And um, he said, um, I, told, I talked to my pastor, and I said, um, I said, I want to share some things about how the Holy Spirit moves at Christmas. And he said the pastor got very defensive, and he was very threatened. And uh, he said, I talked to him a little bit, and I realized that his experience with the Holy Spirit is very different than the experience I've had. He believes that when, when, when a, a person accepts Jesus, that the Holy Spirit indwells them, and that's it. That's it. They don't expect anything more. They don't even talk about Holy Spirit other than he comforts or he opens up the scripture to you. And he said, I asked him what he believed about things like spiritual gifts and um, manifestations of God's spirit and he's and he and he said that that was all only for the apostles in the in the New Testament and so my friend Marlon who had had some powerful experiences of the Holy Spirit was really set back on his ear and he said Pastor Jim he said can we talk about and go back over why it is we believe in the Holy Spirit and the things that the things that he wants to do in and through the believers lives and so we've had a, a, one good conversation since then. But it got me thinking about that whole fact, the fact that we are considered to be Pentecostal. And, and why is that, that we are that? We have that distinctive and that we um, are different than maybe other congregations in our, in our community. I have grew up in an Assembly of God church in a little town called Paulsbo, Washington. And um, it was originally called Pentecostal Tabernacle back in the 50s. It was started by some um, Norwegian Pentecostals from uh, Norway. And, uh, and uh, my roots are partly Norwegian, as you can tell. And, uh, and uh, the pastor of that church that came in 1959, and I started attending when I was a, a four-year-old in 1960, he... Um, he is still alive. He's in his 90s. He pastored that church for 35 or 40 years. Pastor Al Munger. He went to, he went to uh, Bible college, I think at, at uh, Northwestern or whatever they call it, the, the, Bible, the, the Assemblies of God North, Bible College in, in um, St. Paul, Minnesota. <sighs> Crazy. So anyway, so here I am in junior high school and I go to... Uh, uh, the Jesus movement has broken out, and I'm in, uh, this is like 1968, 69. And uh, how many people have heard of the Jesus movement? Some of you. How many people have seen the movie, The Jesus Revolution? Okay, good. Now, guys, it helps you get a frame of reference. So my youth pastor takes our youth group of about 15 kids on a field trip. We have to take the ferry boat across from Seattle, I mean to Seattle from uh, the little town we live on, the peninsula. And uh, we go to this place called Ballard, which is a suburb of Seattle, north of Seattle. And we go to this old Episcopal church. And the pastor of the church is a guy that I had never heard of named Dennis Bennett, Father Dennis Bennett. And he, um, he was the guy that started the charismatic Revival in 1960-something, 65, 66, somewhere there. And he wrote, uh, there was a book written about him called Father Dennis Smokes a Pipe and Speaks in Tongues, something like that. <laughs> so we walk into this old, it's basically like a cathedral. All of us youth are up in the balcony. And, um, and, 
and I don't even remember, there was some music, I guess, and then this, this older guy, whose father, Bennett, uh, comes out on the stage and um, begins to uh, speak, and I don't remember a word of what he said. I don't remember anything except the presence of God hit me in such a powerful way that I was changed forever, and I wasn't even saved. I experienced the Holy Spirit of God touch me deeply. He marked me. And then we went to pizza and pipes and went home. And I remember going home and going, what happened to me? God is real. His Spirit is real. His presence. I felt and experienced His presence. Later on, you know, I was like, I was like 12, 13 at that point. Later on, um, my high school began to experience the Jesus Revolution, the Jesus Movement. And all these young people in my, my high school started finding Jesus. The church I went to, the Assembly of God church I went to, and I only went to church to, to look at the girls and hang out with my buddies back then, okay? 13, 14, 15, 16. And, um, but all these hippies started coming into our church. I don't know, some of you remember the hippies. And uh, Earl, do you remember the hippies? Before. <laughs> you got me there, Earl. You got me. So I remember this one guy named Brother Bud, and he came to church. And uh, Rick, if you're listening on video today, you remember Brother, Brother Bud. And um, they had long hair, and they, they wore the hippie clothing and the tie-dyed, and, and they, they, the hygiene wasn't you know, up to standards. And I remember the deacons and the elders of the church. They all wore suits back then. Suits and ties. I remember how they were challenged because there were like 15 or 20 of these people would come in to our services. And, um, and it was like our congregation went into culture shock. But our pastor, Al, was so wise. He made it a priority to make these people feel welcomed and loved. And I just so appreciated it. It, it, it was a model for me as a pastor to make sure that everyone is welcome Everyone is accepted. We are all broken. We all need a Savior no matter how we dress. We may look good on the outside, but we're all broken and need healing, transformation on the inside. And so we need to always be an open, welcoming place. And I just remember that. And I still wasn't saved. I didn't get saved till I left Paulsville. I went to college. And I went to the biggest party college in the, in the, in the state. But um, I remember then... Um, my freshman year of college, the Holy Spirit started moving in our campus. And um, I was invited to come to a meeting, and I think I've shared this with you, but I, I went to a college meeting. I went back two or three times. I was not saved when I went to the first two meetings. And then I came home the second meeting, and, and I got down on my knees. And the, just a week before, I was down at the bar, drinking, shooting pool, smoking cigarettes, chasing girls, cussing like a sailor. And that night I got down on my knees and I said, Jesus, I know two things now after going to a meeting where your Holy Spirit's presence was so powerful. I said, I know that if I don't give you my life, I'm worthy of going to hell, not to heaven. And I know the second thing is, is that of all the billions of people on this earth, you know me and you love me and you're calling me to be your child. And I got down on my knees and I surrendered my life to Jesus. And I got up and I went to, went to bed after I confessed sins for about 20 minutes. I confessed every sin I could think of. And that was just the tip of the iceberg that I could remember. 
And I, but I remember just doing that. I felt like I was supposed to do that. So I, I get up in the morning and I go out and I, and I get into the shower and I realize somebody turned the color on. My life, my world went from black and white to color. And now I understood who it was that I encountered at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in 1967. It was the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God who's here right now. And uh, I'm so thankful because I've, I've lived my life in a, in a season of time where I've been able to, to be, experience the Jesus movement, to experience the, the, um, the Vineyard Church being started, to experience the Calvary Chapel churches being started out, both out of the Jesus movement. And then later on in the 90s, to experience indirectly the Toronto Vineyard the Toronto um, Blessing, they call it, and the Pensacola Revival. They happened at the same time, one in Florida, one up in Canada, in Toronto. And um, we were past, I was now an associate pastor of a church in Kent, Washington, east of Kent, Washington, in a little town called Covington. And I remember we were hungry for the Holy Spirit. We wanted God to move. And, the, and we, were, we were aware of all the stuff going on in Toronto and Pensacola and stuff and, and, and people falling down because they, they couldn't stand up under the presence of God and, and different things like that. And I remember one Sunday, I was playing this upright piano on, on the stage and I was leading worship and the Pastor John was, was uh, helping sing and leading worship and there was a whole row of people on the front row that I don't know what happened, but the Holy Spirit fell on the house, and they all fell down, the whole row, instantly. But nobody cued anybody else. They all just went over. And we were, we were shocked. We didn't know what to do. We thought, this is crazy. And, um, but um, anyway, God moved powerfully. It was a very difficult season because we didn't know how to steward what was going on. We didn't want to quench the Holy Spirit's moving, but we didn't want also for there to be craziness that was coming out of people's flesh or a counterfeiting of the enemy. So, so that was another experience I had. And then, um, and then when we pastored in Oregon, we started attending Bethel Church periodically in Redding, California. We would go two or three times a year. And the Holy Spirit moved there very powerfully. And I'm just so thankful I've been able to have those experiences. And God has met me powerfully in my life. And I'm so thankful for this, the experiences that I've had. But I don't want to just talk about me this morning. I want to talk about where we are right now, here in Calvary, in Alliance. Did you know that Alliance has an amazing distinction? It's got actually a couple. I'm going to read a couple things. Um, back in 1990, this is what Pastor Terry Brown told me, and then I, I found this article. In 1987, Paul Harvey, the famous radio speaker, who uh, not, not necessarily Christian, but I think he's a Christian, but he would have a morning radio thing every morning. My dad and mom would always listen to Paul Harvey, and I did too. He said that in 1987... Alliance, Nebraska, had the highest per capita incidence of drug use in America. Did you know that? I didn't either. Uh, what a shocking thing. But breakthrough began in March 18th of 1990 
when an eight-day evangelistic series led by a guy named Don Anders and his family stretched into a a nine-and-a-half-week crusade, over 900 people in alliance confessed Jesus as Savior and Lord. Started when a, a group of a small group of pastors began to pray together and cry out to God. They did this for 15 months. Group of pastors and our pastor here at the time, Terry Brown, was a part of that group of pastors as well as the Berean Church, Evangelical Free, and a number of others. A Methodist, I'm sure. Let me just read some of the things that happened. <laughs> you girls are something else. They're fun. The whole town knew God was at work. The wife and ex-wife of one man had experienced eight years of bitterness and sleepless nights. During the crusade, they publicly forgave and embraced one another. A 33-year-old woman and her husband were in the midst of a divorce. He was seeing another woman. Their two daughters were suffering from their parents' sins. Then the mother was saved on March 30th, and her family was transformed. She testified, God has saved my marriage and family has put a love in my heart and soul more intense than it has ever been. God gave me the power of forgiveness, compassion, understanding, love, and control over my weak human will and thoughts. I couldn't change no matter how hard I tried. I can do nothing but with Jesus, anything and everything is possible. I desperately want everyone to know this, that through Jesus Christ you can live a first-rate life on earth and have eternal life in heaven. One man had a very strange relationship with his mother. They hardly spoke. When the meetings began, the family issued a prayer request for the mother. She came to the meetings and trusted Christ. The son and his mother embraced in front of the congregation. Not only did she accept Christ, but they were completely reconciled and the bitterness was gone. Shortly after, the white man's wife said, it's just unbelievable to get birthday cards and phone calls from my mother-in-law. That had never happened before. A woman who was suicidal walked into the meetings and immediately felt the impact of warm love. She confessed Christ that night, and the next week she brought her estranged husband. They were in the process of divorce, but they went to the prayer room together. The next day they called their lawyers to stop the divorce. This news spread rapidly and impacted the whole town. The evangelist, Don Anders, was quite surprised by such a powerful moving of God. I don't understand what is happening here, he exclaimed, but it's wonderful. He said he'd never had more than an eight-day meeting in his 15 years of preaching and had never seen the Holy Spirit work like this before. Seven men spoke during the meetings. It didn't matter who spoke or what they spoke on. People were convicted and went to the prayer room, according to Anders' associate. Some evenings, every known unbeliever present was converted. The secret of this powerful work was united. God was, of God was united prayer. Preparations for this miracle of work, miracle of God, were regular fasting, prayer, and cooperation among pastors, according to Jules Ostrander, Heidi's dad, <laughs> who was pastoring the Alliance Baptist Church back then. Isn't that awesome? Anyway, um, it went on for quite a while. And again, 900 people surrendered to Jesus. At the end of it, 
The enemy got in there like he does sometimes. People's flesh, people's fear, and, and it, it quenched it. But those 900 people were touched by God. And there are still people in our community today that were touched powerfully by that event. Some of them fellowship and some of them are not in church. People can get offended and stuff. I believe God wants to do it again. There's a website. You can read this article up that was on the previous slide right there. If you want to get that and read this whole article, it's pretty impressive. Pastor Terry Brown's heart was broken through the quenching and the mistrust. Uh, there was, people began to speak out against Pentecostal churches and the work of the Holy Spirit because of fear, because of fear and doctrinal differences. And, and that happens. But the other thing is you've got to realize that revivals are not made to be just go on forever. They're like God pouring out His Spirit for a season for a purpose. It's kind of like when you build a fire with green wood, what do you got to do? You got to pour some diesel oil on it or some gasoline to get it going. And then when it's hot enough, it, it'll, it'll stay going by itself. And the fire puts out heat and light, right? And the heat is like the warmth of God's love to draw. Don't you love it when you're out camping and it's cold out and you build a fire and you just want to get right on top of that fire to get warm? I just love, I love camping. I was a Boy Scout too. And I just love camping, love fires, love beach fires. You, guys don't, you know what beaches are here? No, just kidding. But um, you get on Lake, Lake Mac. There you go. But um, the other thing is that fires provide light. So when there's a fire burning, people are drawn by the warmth and the light, they're able to see what is really real around them. And so God wants you and me to burn. He wants our church to burn for Him. And because when we are burning, then we are sharing His warmth to the people around us and the light that they need to know to see their way out of the darkness. And so when things aren't burning, when we've gotten our, when we're down to just coals and we're not, we're not burning, God periodically pours out some of his oil on our fire, which is like pouring diesel on the fire. And the, and the fire gets going again and it takes the green wood and it, it gets it hot enough that it starts going again. And I believe that we're in a season now where God's getting ready to pour out His oil again and cause our fires to reignite and burn again. When I um, read that verse this morning where Habakkuk says, Lord, we've seen what you did in the past. We've seen what God's done in the past here. Dr., uh, Pastor Robert Porter came with us last year celebrating his 50-year anniversary in ministry and he came with us last August and, and we had not the, I guess it was a year ago and uh, a little over a year ago but Pastor Robert Porter said that things were still moving powerfully here when he was here and that was the remnants of the Jesus movement and uh, John Sampson John's dad uh, John Sampson Sr. has got so many stories of the things that the Holy Spirit did back in the 80s and 90s and that's fun to look at and remember those things but how many of you can go the past isn't good enough for me. God, we want you to do it again. We want you to renew your works in our day. 
in our time. That's what the prophet's praying for Israel at that point. We sing a song here called Do It Again. The chorus goes like this. I've seen you move. You move the mountains. And I believe I'll see you do it again. You made a way where there was no way. And I believe I'll see you do it again. I'll see you do it again. I want to see God do it again. And, and you've got to understand, I'm not just looking for experiences, and experiences are wonderful. What I want is to see people know Jesus. Like that 900 that came and confessed Jesus over those, those, those couple months, or three, four months, I don't know how long it lasted. Started in March of 1990. Maybe went on for half a year, I don't know. But I want God to touch people's lives, to heal broken hearts and broken marriages to set people free from demonic torment, to open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf, both spiritually and physically. I believe God is getting ready to pour out His Spirit again. I believe we are a people that are hungering for that and positioning ourselves for that. We're going to talk about that next as we wrap things up. So why are we called Pentecostals? Let's take a look at Acts chapter 1. I'm just going to look at a couple parts of that. It's all because of what happened on a festival or feast called Pentecost. That the, it was a Jewish feast. And it happened 50 days after Passover, when the Passover lamb was sacrificed, which was the day that Jesus gave his life on the cross, on Passover Sunday. And Pentecost means 50. Pente right? Pente, pentagram means five-sided. Pent Pentagon, five-sided. Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. And so 40 days of that, Jesus was with the resurrected Jesus, with his disciples, appearing to them, teaching them, preparing them. And then on the 40th day, he ascended into heaven and then he told them to wait. So let's read this verse, starting in Acts chapter 1, verses, uh, one through, or verses 3. Starting in verse 3. During the uh, 40 days after he suffered and died, Jesus appeared to the disciples from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once he was eating with them, and he commanded them, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with or in the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that? Jesus said, you guys don't go anywhere. Don't do anything yet. You're not empowered. You're not equipped to do the ministry that I want you to do. He says, I want you to wait for this gift that my daddy's going to give you. So they don't know what that is, except that he tells them, just as John baptized people in water, you're going to be baptized in Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. So to be baptized again means to be immersed, drenched, 
where your identity is changed. Remember the Lydia in Acts chapter 16 was a dyer in purple cloth. She would take white roll of cloth, dunk it in a tank of purple dye. The cloth would become purple and it would never be white again. It would be completely marked forever. It was purple cloth. That dunking in the tank is the word baptizo. And so Jesus, Jesus is saying, this gift from my Father is going to be a baptism in the Holy Spirit that's going to happen to you. And just wait for it until it happens. So we people would say, well, you only receive the Holy Spirit once when you're saved. But these guys, were they were saved. They were his disciples. And now Jesus is telling them to wait and to receive this experience where God will empower them to do his ministry And the book of Acts details all the things that they did through the power of the Holy Spirit after that. So what happens? Starting in verse 8, Jesus says, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So what happens? Ten days later, on the day of Pentecost, it's 50 days from Jesus' dying on the cross. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like a mighty roaring windstorm, and it filled the house that they were sitting in. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. They didn't know those languages. And then it talks about all the people from all these different nations living in Jerusalem. And when they hear these uh, languages being spoken, because apparently this group has now gone out onto the street, they all start, they all come running. And they start hearing God speaking to them in their own languages, all those different nations. In verse 9 it says, We hear all these people speaking in our own languages, about the wonderful things God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean, they asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk. So I want to note here, well, before I do that, let me just mention that Peter's response there, he says, he gets up and talks, and he says, these people aren't drunk. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. What you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all people, on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters are going to prophesy. That's what was happening. Your young, people, your young men will see visions and your old people, men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, which are still ahead of us. Blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before that great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I note here, you got to understand, when, for an outpouring of God's Spirit... It takes two things. God has to decide, I'm going to pour out my spirit. It's a sovereign moving of the Holy Spirit of God. And he has his timing and seasons. And we've been dry for a while. (laughs) And I've been praying, God, I want to see another move of your spirit before I'm done. 
But beyond the sovereign move of God, there has to be a people who are prepared to receive that move. There has to be a net ready to catch all the fish that God wants to harvest. There has to be a, a, a grain bin to, to catch all the grain from the harvest. But notice, I see five things about these disciples that made, it, made them a people that God could pour His Spirit out on. Let's look at these real quick. Number one, they obeyed Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus says, I want you to wait. Don't do anything. Go and wait for me, and God's going to give you a gift that you need. And they did that. They waited for that gift. So they obeyed Jesus. And the question for us is, have we, are we obeying Jesus right now in everything that he's told us to do? If we want to be a people that can receive the move of God, we have to be a people that is in sync with God and, and, and is willing to put, humble ourselves and submit ourselves to Jesus' leadership and lordship in our lives. I hear any men's out there? <laughs> Secondly, they were willing to wait. They waited 10 days. I don't know about you, we're in that culture of we don't wait for nothing. Everything's instant. I don't know about you, I, I watch videos sometimes from Facebook or YouTube. After 5 or 10 seconds, I want to go to the next one. I don't wait for anything anymore. I, how often do I listen to a whole message even anymore online? It's like everything is quick, 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 quick. But God often asks us to wait. Are we willing to wait? To not get restless and start looking for the, the, something to stuff in our mouth or something else to do or looking at our phone again? I'm, I'm just as guilty as anybody here. They were willing to wait 10 days. And then a crazy thing is, the third thing is, they were relationally able to wait together. When it says they were in one accord, there's 120 of them in, in an upper room. Can you imagine being in the same room with this group of people for 10 days? They probably went back and forth, you know, went to the restroom and things like that. But, and there was some business they did. But 10 days with the same group of people and not get on each other's nerves? If there were people that were angry and bitter at one another, they would have come to the surface. But just that tells me that they had their, they, were, they had forgiven one another that they were living relationally in a healthy place where they were not holding things against each other. They were not angry. They were not um, bitter. They were not jealous or whatever it is, but they were relationally whole or at least healthy to where they could stay together in unity for 10 days. I don't know about you, but that seems pretty... Uh, that stretches it for me. That's pretty amazing. And number four is they were expecting. They weren't there just to put in their hours. They were expecting Jesus to do something. They were expecting the Holy Spirit to come do They didn't know what. Sure, there were lots of different things the Holy Spirit did in the Old Testament, in the lives of prophets, and sometimes kings, and sometimes others, you know, where the Holy Spirit fell on people. You know, the prophets, Oftentimes they couldn't stand up or they would see visions and have dreams and things like that. They didn't know what to expect. But they were anticipating, they were expecting God to do something. Do we have that kind of an anticipation? Are we expecting God to do anything? 
in our midst? Are we expecting the same old, same old? Then the fifth thing is, is they were praying. Praying not just individually, but praying together. I love this in verse 14 of chapter 1. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Wow. How is your prayer life when it comes to praying with others? We have prayer meetings here Sunday mornings at 8.30 for about half an hour. And we have prayer meetings on Monday evenings. What time, Maria? 6.30? 6 to 8. And how many people are coming to that if they all showed up? About 15? Eight or ten? Okay. So, guess what? This is a challenge for you. And, and there's, we, we'll be glad to open the facility up if people want to pray in a different time. But they were all in one accord in prayer and in supplication. And, and they, that, that's a challenge to us. If we want God to move, are we willing to pay a price for that? Are we willing to get before the Lord and start crying out to Him? I'm going to wrap things up here. We are a people of the Spirit. This book is a history of the Assemblies of God called a People of the Spirit. It is available. It's an amazing book. I've read it from cover to cover. And it's an incredible book. It says it belonged at one time to Earl Johnson. So, I don't know who that is, but if you want to borrow it, it's going to be in the church library. And it details the moving of the Holy Spirit throughout the history of the Assemblies of God. And the Assemblies of God started out of the Azusa Street Revival in 1905 when God began to pour out His Spirit and went all over the world. There was a Pentecostal re revivals in almost every nation of the globe. And the Assemblies of God is born out of They officially became the Assemblies of God around 1915 because all these people, the Holy Spirit started falling on them. They started experiencing things like prophecy, speaking in unknown languages and stuff like that. And a lot of their denominations did not, were not friendly for that. And so they were forced out and they either had to join other churches or find groups of churches that they could be a part of that would, would allow that. And um, eventually the Assemblies of God formed in 1915, I think in Hot Springs, Arkansas, where they started. <coughs> Secondly, we have for Nebraska, this book called Nebraska's Living Water. 20th Century Assemblies of God. This details the history of the Assemblies of God in Nebraska, our family movement, and it talks about alliance. I'll read you just a little bit. 1930, the Alliance Assembly of God had its beginning under the ministry of Reverend Claude Thurmond. Services were held in a home. Later, the group rented a small church at 3rd and Sweetwater. Is that church still there, I wonder? No. In October 1941, Reverend and Mrs. Clyde King came as pastors. The church still owned no property, but they met in an old one-room church building. And... Uh, 
It was, they were pretty desperate. They lived in poverty. The church was heated by a wood stove. They finally purchased a lot at 824 Missouri, where the Christian church is now the Christian church, and they bought a building from the airfield. It was an old movie theater and moved it over there and made it into a church. And um, Reverend um, and Mrs. C.A. Beebe came as pastors in 1944. That's when they got the building from the army base. And then Pastor Porter was here in 1981. They, they dedicated this facility. Uh, remember Vern Zitterkoff, uh, Dan Zitterkoff, or, yeah, Dan Zitterkoff, Dan Libby's, his dad built this two-thirds of the building, and then John Sampson Sr. built, with, with a lot of help, built the children's wing, the Calvary Kids Wing. So there's a list of pastors here. Some of them you may have heard of. Um, there's a bunch that I don't know have anything about, but um, Robert Porter, Terry Brown, Donald Owen, Michael Carl, and Michael Schaff, who we've had here speak a number of times. These books are available for you to read if you want to look at those. So as I wrap things up, and I'm sorry a couple minutes over today, we want God to move. We are people of the Spirit. But people are also suspicious and afraid of Pentecostalism. They're, what they're really afraid of is the extremes. And we do not believe in, in, uh, in extremes. We believe in stewarding the work of the Spirit but not quenching the Holy Spirit's moving. There's two extremes. What we call wildfire, where it basically is more um, the f- human flesh and counterfeit spirits get involved and people do crazy things. I went to one meeting at Seattle Revival Center in 1992, I think it was, where there was a lady running around shrieking like a rooster and running circles while the guy was trying to deliver a message. And nobody did anything about it. And people were barking like dogs and things like that. And, um, and it was just bizarre. But it was all under the name of the Holy Spirit. And it was out of order. And uh, so there's, a, there's such a thing as stewarding so that the Holy Spirit work and we, we don't let human flesh and the desire to be seen and recognized uh, get where pe- people are taking over wanting to be seen and so on. And we don't allow the enemy. I have heard people speak in tongues that were demonic spirit tongues, not Holy Spirit tongues. And I, I witnessed that a couple times. And we cast the demons out of those people, and then they spoke in a beautiful flowing language that was from the Holy Spirit. And so there is the counterfeit, and there is the flesh. The enemy loves to get in and to cause us to shut the whole thing down and quench the Holy Spirit of God because of the counterfeit. When God calls us as leaders to wisely judge what is true and authentic and what is not what is false and, and what is counterfeit. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. That's the responsibility of church leadership to steward so that we don't allow wildfire in, we don't allow... Uh, flesh to glory and to take advantage and, and cause there to be um, a, a bad reputation for the Spirit of the Lord. I believe our vision in this house is to see Calvary be a house where the Holy Spirit is Lord and is not quenched. 
where wise, hungry leaders, steward is moving, not controlling him, but according to his word, testing all things and sorting out the fleshly and demonic counterfeits, where signs and wonders and healing miracles draw people to Jesus, where the gifts of the Spirit flow freely, where unity is sought with other hungry believers and fellowships. And by the way, I just got to go last night to a wonderful meeting at the Bethel Hispanic Church in town. There were four congregations gathered there, and they've invited. And some of our people were able to be there. Some of you were able to be there. It was a powerful time. God is doing a mighty work of unity in this community, as I mentioned earlier, where prayer and worship is an increasing river in this area, where persecution is endured with grace and prayer and where the enemy's strategies are known and resisted. Do you have a desire to see that this morning? To see God move by His Spirit in our community again? To do a fresh work? Alan has had words from the Lord in which he has said that God is getting ready to do that in this house. And others have too. And maybe um, on a different Sunday, you could talk a little bit more about that because I believe it's a word from the Lord. So this morning as I close, I just want to ask you, those five things. Are you, are you willing to obey Jesus? Are you willing to wait on Him like Mary did, sitting at His feet? Are you relationally, relationally willing to deal with issues you, between you and other believers? Are you expecting God to move? And are you praying? Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank You this morning. Holy Spirit, we acknowledge you have moved powerfully in this church. At one point, Alliance in 1990 was known as the place where the Holy Spirit is moving in the United States. For a brief period of time, Lord, it's pretty amazing that you would move here in a town that we don't, we don't think of it as an exceptionally well-known town. Carhenge isn't exactly what our reputation <laughs> is to be based on. But Lord, we thank you that you moved, you moved in our past. And Lord, we want to say we want you to move again. And I pray that you would begin, Lord, to just create such a hunger in us to seek your face, to cry out to you, and to give you room to move in our lives again. Lord, I pray if there's any here this morning that have not surrendered to you and said, Jesus, come and be who you are. Come and be my God. Be my Lord and Savior. I surrender my life to you. Come and wash me clean. Lord, I pray that that would happen, that they would surrender to you today. We just thank you, Lord, for what you have planned for the future of this congregation. As I, my role changes and as I move from being the, a leader here to being a cheerleader of this congregation and the leadership here, God, I pray that you would uh, give me the opportunity to hear and see wonderful things that you are doing here in Calvary, in Alliance, in Hemingford. And we just thank you for this morning and the chance to be together and for the power of your word and the promises that you have yet to fulfill here. And we just bless you, Lord, as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.